but a real pipe organ play. The melodies are like the cracking of a whip as they come down like thunder. They're not soft like a piano, but instead the harmonies, they are immense as they come to rain down upon you. I remember when I was a kid, I was taken to Cadizan, the Ringling Mansion down in Sarasota, Florida. And the tour guide told me that the organ itself had to be built first and then the rest of the house second. Because the organ, it was so massive that it went all the way up through the structure that it had to come first before the rest of the house. If you've ever heard a real pipe organ play, if you've ever been to a cathedral or opera house where the music beckons, it is a very, very powerful thing. Even if you've heard some of those smaller organs, which people have in their houses that are built within beautiful cabinets and they've got the billows that you pump down there with your feet, their music as well can be very powerful as they feel the air. You know, back when the church used to use organs regularly, there was something that was taught in the way of this powerful music. You see, God himself is dangerous. Yes, his beauty is greater than anything we could ever imagine. But at the same time, He's more dangerous than anything as well. And just like the organ music, it comes upon you with this dangerous and beautiful melody. God's holiness, it too, is dangerous and very powerful. And if we really want to appreciate the love of God and the holiness to which we are called, then we must understand the dangerous and compelling nature of God. The heavenly world, or the heavenly throne above all worlds, is not safe. But the power of God desires that we find repentance rather than destruction. So thank you for joining me. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor. Let's open up in prayer, and we're going to study Mark 10 and Isaiah 6 today. Gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that you come and be with us wherever we may be, that we may look upon your beauty, that we may be convicted, that our hearts and minds, they may be pushed to that we would set aside our own will and we would look up towards your magnificent throne. Lord, I pray that you bless each and every one of us, those whom we deal with in life. Give us strength, wisdom, and encouragement. We ask all of this through Christ our Lord. Amen. So today we're actually going to begin by reading Isaiah 6, the first eight verses. And this is not something which is relatively new to my, my preaching or anything like that. I've talked a lot about Isaiah 6. I've talked a lot about the image of the throne room there in Revelation. Today, what I really want to do is put a heavy emphasis on how dangerous God is. I want to take some of the themes that I've touched on a lot here in the last year or so and weave them together so that we really understand the magnitude of how serious God's presence actually is, how powerful holiness is, and how this is something that we should really appreciate in order to fully unlock the goodness of the gospel. So Isaiah 6 opens up by saying, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each had six wings, with two wings they were covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they called to one another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory." At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. All right, so let's just pause for a second here at verse 4 and understand the magnitude of God's throne room here in this temple here in heaven. What we find is that God's image is so powerful that his high-ranking attendants, these seraphim, which again, as far as angelic beings go, they're up at the very top in terms of tending to God personally, and these seraphim whose purpose is to tend to God, 
they must still cover their faces and their feet, lest they be destroyed by God's powerful presence. Furthermore, for them to even declare how holy God is, it shakes the very guttural foundations of this temple. And keep in mind, this is not some ramshack, you know, structure that somebody threw up in a mid-afternoon. It's not some lean-to that we've had attached to a barn. It's not even one of our structures that we might build that might, say, last for a couple of generations if we're lucky. But instead, this is the principal architecture in all creation. This is God's personal temple here in his kingdom. And when we see in Revelation how God's kingdom is described, his personal residence, we know that it is all built out of precious stones, the hardest things we can find in creation. Moreover, they're placed together in an order by the master of all creation, who is the master craftsman himself. So this is no small affair that the temple would shake. But this is what it means to actually declare the holiness of God in his presence. This is what truth actually looks like. What we are finding here in Isaiah 6 is that truth itself is so powerful when you actually see it unrestrained, unfettered. To see God described as holy in his presence, it is powerful. Picking up in verse 5, Isaiah says, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Now what we find here is that when the prophet beholds the dangerous presence of God, whose appearance is so powerful that the seraphs must cover their feet and faces to avoid destruction, when Isaiah witnesses God without any blinders, any veils which might lessen his view, his immediate words are, I am ruined. Now, different translations might say something like, I am undone or I am lost. But the Hebrew that we have going on here is nidmeti. And it is a word which means irrevocable destruction, that something has been unmade. It has been taken apart. The prophet realizes the truth that God is too dangerous to even lay eyes upon. And on top of that, Isaiah knows that he is a fallen creature. He remembers that. So many in our modern world have forgotten that we are fallen creatures, that God alone makes the good. There's no magic exception to that. God alone makes the good. And we are fallen creatures. But yet, God whose power is so dangerous does not desire our destruction, but instead our restoration. And even though Isaiah is quite correct, he would be ruined in this moment. The mercy of God does not desire him to be destroyed. And in verse 6 it says, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which had been taken with tongs from the altar. When he touched my mouth, he said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt has been taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. And even though we're mostly looking at how powerful and dangerous God is in this text, I want us to also remember verse 8 because the God whose ability to destroy is simply bestowed by his appearance doesn't actually want destruction. God wants to send someone that redemption would come for his people. And as we look here at Isaiah, Isaiah has this cold touch to his mouth. Again, this is a serious image. You know, we look at the cross. There were real holes in Jesus' hands. He really bled and died. When we look throughout scripture, people have really suffered 
in Egypt, they really had to make bricks without straw under the tyranny of Pharaoh. You know, we in our human form, we tend to think that the purpose of life is to avoid suffering, but that's not the case. We can go all the way back to Genesis and see how God created the heavens and the earth, and there's a great amount of power that is there. We often look around our, our world and look at nature and say, why is it that nature is so powerful? Why is it that there are predators, like a wolf that might go and eat a rabbit? Why is nature so immensely dangerous? But we have to understand that to create is no easy affair. It takes an enormous amount of power to create a world out of nothing. God doesn't just come to some clay and say, well, I want to reshape what someone else does. In Genesis, God makes the heavens and the earth out of the void, out of nothing. And in order for creation to suspend herself against the, the great collapse back into the void, then she must be filled with dangerous power. You look at lightning as it booms across the sky. All of these things are very powerful. God's creation is powerful. Why? Because he who sits in the throne above all worlds is dangerous and powerful himself. Yet, his order was not done for the sake of misery and suffering, though Suffering is something which we must persevere through if we want to actually achieve something good. It's a lesser thing in the order of things. Again, critical thinking is largely about putting things in their proper order. God created these so that they would be beautiful, good, and true. That was the goal in which God is looking for. And we find there in Genesis, God declaring it is good. And when we come here to Isaiah... Isaiah is one who is forced to recognize the dangerous power of God that wants to actually bring redemption. And when we look at our dangerous world around us, I want us to remember that even the slightest sin, it can mangle the dangerous power of creation into meaningless suffering almost immediately. Suffering itself is not immediately a problem in the sense that it's evil or, or wicked. Uh, Pastor John Mills, he's been talking about this a lot and in his Sunday school lessons, which there will be coming up throughout the week as well. But we have to understand that even before the fall, God gave Adam and Eve work to do. There was labor to do in a garden. And labor itself is a form of suffering. You know, it's not always pleasant to get up in the morning and go do your daily work. But yet, there is goodness which can be achieved through that. And when we see Isaiah being touched with this coal, it too is a dangerous image, but yet there is goodness to be achieved through that. Going to Mark 11, I want us to take an ex examination of the fig tree that is cursed. So Mark 11, beginning in verse 12, reads, On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing from a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. All right, so let's pause for a moment. What we find here is that the fig tree, it is placed in an urgent moment. There is no opportunity for it to return to its comfortable state of idleness. It must either bear fruit or accept the curse of its dishonesty. And as surprising as it might sound for a tree to be dishonest, dishonesty is actually a prominent aspect of the fig tree's failure. For it is displaying prominent layers of leaves as if it were actually bearing fruit. From a distance, the tree has all of the visual aspects correct to suggest it is doing what it is supposed to do. However, upon close examination, one finds that there is nothing really happening. 
You know, in our modern day and age, we have this language of virtue signaling, and it's something which has been popular since the fall, I assume, because we always find people doing this. It's much easier to appear virtuous than it is to actually do virtuous things. And for a great many people, they, uh, they prefer the appearance of being virtuous than the quiet virtue which actually goes on often unnoticed. When you go back to the fig tree here, it has the virtue of bearing fruit. But in truth, nothing is happening. The fig tree is virtue signaling. And I think the, a better use of the English language would be to describe this concept as virtue scamming. You're running a scam where you pretend like you're doing something, but you're really not. You're just here to get attention and to get applause. Well, the fig tree is bearing false witness about its life. And there are many people who do this. They prefer to appear virtuous rather than actually be virtuous. Yet, whenever the master of creation comes close for a near examination, the facade falls and there's nothing going on. Let's pick back up in Mark 11, verse 15. When they arrived at Jerusalem, he entered the temple area and began to drive out those who were selling and buying on the temple grounds. And he overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple grounds. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house will be a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and scribes heard this, and they began seeking how to put him to death, for they were afraid of him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Now what we find here is actually some more ancient world virtue signaling. If you look at a distance at people inside the temple, they've got their booths set up, they've got all their tables out with stuff, you can come in and buy your doves, and it's not just that they're doves that you might go home and use for some personal use, all of these are made for worship, for bringing your tithes, your offering, you know, go in there and change your money so that you can give those required givings. They have all the things here that are necessary for worship, for sacrifices, for making oneself right with God. But yet, it's actually full of scams and wickedness. It's just people here seeking to take advantage of their neighbors. It is filled with nothing but robbery. Though it is clever robbery that is designed to look as if it is not. Very much like the fig tree, we have people bearing false witness about what is really going on. And the sad thing is, is you can't reason through this. You're not going to be able to come to these people in the temple and say, oh, you're doing something wicked and corrupt because they'll just continually say, you know, no, I'm not. I'm here to help people sacrifice. I'm here to help. I'm here to do something good. Jesus shows us how you deal with this sort of thing. You've got to turn the tables over. You've got to, to end it. You've got to bring something severe. Jesus is not acting immature about this. Jesus is showing us the best possible route of dealing with this wretched situation. Whenever people are virtue signaling, they're pretending to be virtuous about something. They want to just look like an activist who cares. Really, the only way to deal with that is to turn the tables over and, and get them out. Verse 20. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from its roots. And... Being reminded, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered and said to him, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted to him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted to you. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If anything against anyone, 
you have, forgive it, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you of your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your trespasses. All right, so Jesus wraps back around to the cursed fig tree. And the imagery here is absolutely fatal. It's overwhelmingly fatal. Nothing in this entire incident is passive or casual. And you can find that ranging from the notion of withering to a point of no return or the extraordinary notion of a mountain being raised up and tossed into the sea. These are images of finality, conditions from which one cannot escape. And in the midst of such heaviness comes the gospel truth. If one faithfully abides with God, then they will be graced beyond measure. However, those with impure hearts will receive their earnings in full and meet an irreparable end. And going now to Romans 6, 23, Paul writes, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have to understand that wages are earnings. They're not gifts. The logical and necessary reward for sin is death. The correct reward for the aberrations which great chaos against the created order of God is death. This tree bore false witness about its virtue, claiming to be good when it was not. Again, it should not have leaves unless it has fruit. It's pretending like it has fruit when it doesn't. And as a result, it earned death. The withering curse was the true seed of its dishonest action. Going back to Genesis 1, Genesis 1, 1 through 4 read, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. We must understand that this is not a tame image. This is a very powerful, a very dangerous image. Creation snapping together is not a light thing. And I mean light meaning it's something which is not very heavy. It, it in fact is a light thing in the fact that it radiates and is filled with the, the light which God has spoken into place. We must understand that if there's ever to be anything of value, anything of meaning, then there must also be an extraordinary amount of power binding it together to, to prevent it from collapsing back to the void. One might wonder why the forces of nature are so extraordinarily powerful, but the throne above all the worlds is dangerous and unsafe. And whenever we add the slightest of sins, we find that we can mangle creation's great power into meaningless suffering. The thing that I want us to learn the most from our lesson today is that God is dangerous and that life is serious. One cannot skirt by virtue signaling and pretending to be virtuous when in fact they are not. Because there will come an hour when one must be before the mighty throne of heaven, the one who is the master of all creation. And his image is very dangerous and very powerful. But what we learn from that lesson with the fig tree is that when you actually have faith in God, you can move mountains. You don't have to be the fig tree that is cursed and die. You see, the power of the throne of heaven wants to reside with you. It wanted to reside even with the fig tree. Jesus wanted to come over and find that his creation was indeed doing as it was designed to do. We must remember that God is powerful. There are many in our modern era who find it difficult to understand what it means to fear God. There are a great many theologians of our modern era 
who churn over ways of reinterpreting and translating this concept so that they might discover some relevant understanding. I know, I've, I've read the books, I've been there. There are a lot of people who don't understand the fear of God being something simple as understanding how dangerous he is. There are a lot of people who have forgotten that God alone makes the good, that we are fallen creatures, and they have also forgotten that God is the most absolutely dangerous thing in all of creation. Proverbs 1.7 states, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And truly, when we recognize how severe God's danger is, then suddenly the dark valleys around us do not have such weight. Moreover, once we realize that God's dangerous and compelling nature is to love and call us to his kingdom, then we find something beautiful where we are really brought to a new place of glory. We no longer have to be trapped in the wiles of chaotic, evil, and petty living, but instead we can live lives of holiness. So we're going to wrap that up there. Let's say the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, power, and glory forever. Amen. And on that, God love you, and have a blessed day.